You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You may be seated, church. And let me say good morning. And my name is Mark Kirkendall. I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus and it's always great to be here and a privilege to open up God's Word. And if you are a guest with us this morning, you've come and uh, maybe you're invited by a friend or you were driving by and you want to check out this strange place behind the Goodwill store, well, we want you to know you are not here by accident, that we believe before the foundations of the world even, God knew who would be here on this day of April 29th of 2018. And so we gather with that anticipation that God is going to say something. God is going to speak to us this morning. And so I want to begin by telling you that um, of a time in my life, probably the best three weeks of my entire childhood. I grew up in a small little town in northwest Arkansas and uh, raised in a small little church. And it was the day that some men got together and decided to redo the back parking lot. Church didn't have a lot. There wasn't kind of a lot to do after you know, church, we would just hang out and play tag or whatever we could. But I remember coming out one evening after an evening service, looking outside, and there was this huge mound of dirt. And for three weeks, it was the greatest thing us boys and some of the girls who were brave enough to join in. And so for three weeks, we couldn't wait for my dad to say, amen, and us to be done to tear out to play King of the Hill. It was great I mean, our parents even got to the place that they started bringing extra clothes because we were getting so dirty playing King of the Hill. But you know the premise. Somebody climbs to the top, and then it's everybody else's job to knock them off the hill. And you really had some ways to go about this. You could either be the brave one and challenge the king, or you could kind of wait in the shadows for someone to dethrone him, and then you take your rightful place on the top of the mound of dirt. And we, for hours now, I mean, we'd come home with dirt in our ears, our mouth, I mean, everything. And it was great. We loved it. Well, and believe it or not, that's a little bit where we find David this morning. So we've been walking through the life of David for now 15 weeks. We've got one more week next week that we will close up this series. But David, there's been an attempt to dethrone David, to knock him off the hill. And it happened that it was his very own son, Absalom. But Absalom has been defeated, and it's time now for David to take his rightful place as king. But he's been run out of Jerusalem, but now it is time for him to come back. And here's the question that we'll see today that everybody is asking is, how is David going to do this? How is David going to come home and to recapture the hearts of the people in the throne? We're going to see this, and we're going to see David returning today. And what we're going to do, then we will see the reaction of four men of the king's return. And you're going to find this today in 2 Samuel chapter 19. And I'd love to invite you there. We saw the first eight verses last week. So we're going to pick up in verse 8 this morning. And we're going to see how is David going to return? How is he going to get back to king of the hill? How's he going to recapture the people's hearts? So the story picks up in verse 8, and this is how the word of the Lord reads. Then the king arose, and he took his place 
in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate. And all the people came before the king that were there in that city. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. So David has won the battle, and Israel, the northern territory, is scared to death. It says they each run away. This is the tribes, the northern tribes that supported Absalom. And they're running home. They're running back to their tents because they're scared, because they're wondering, okay, David is king. He's defeated Absalom. So surely what's he going to do? Is he going to come in and just take out everyone that stood against him? Well, you see in verse 9, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, so the northern territories, saying this, the king delivered us from the hand of the enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out from the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do we say nothing about bringing the king back. And so there's this division among the people. They're there and they're wondering. The question is, do we receive David back? Or do we continue to stand against him like we did with Absalom? So what happens though is some begin to see the reality. And hopefully that's what happens. Man, we can make horrible mistakes. But hopefully then we begin to see the truth of what we've done. And they start remembering. Oh wait, you remember David? Man, he's the one that led us into battle, and he saved us from the Philistines. They acknowledged that David is not in the land anymore, and you see what they said? They realized, oh, wait, it's not David's fault. It was Absalom. David's not here, not because of him. They go, it's because of us. We're the ones that tried to dethrone the king. We tried to disown him, not the other way around. They said, well, listen, God, we're realizing David was God's anointed. Absalom, he, he was ours. And they're beginning to see their sin. So they're asking themselves, okay, then what's stopping us? What is stopping us from bringing David back as king? And the answer is simply fear. How would they bring David back? How is David going to come back and retake the throne? Because if you stood against the king, most kings are not going to let that stand more than one. David's going to know who was with him and who was not. Is he going to come back and take every one of them out? So now David could have marched right back into Jerusalem and retaken his throne with all his power and might of the army behind him. But David's not going to do that. David's going to do something very interesting about how he's going to retake the hill. And you begin to see it in verse 11. <coughs> and it says... And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abithar. These were the priests of the land there. He says, say to the elders, the leaders of Judah, and Judah is the southern territory. He says, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? And when the word of all of Israel, that would be the north, has come to the king, meaning I've already heard from them, what is taking you so long? In verse 12, he says, you, talking to Judah, you're my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring the king back? So David's hearing the, the news coming from the north that they're scared, but David, they've realized they're wrong. They want you to come back. 
But David begins thinking, but what about Judah? Because many of them sided with Absalom. You know, if anyone is going to welcome back, David's saying it should be you. I mean, I'm from your tribe. You remember the family reunions we had and got together at Grandma's house? He says, what is taking you so long? You're my own flesh and blood. But can't you sense Judah? They're just ashamed. Because if anyone should have known better, it would have been one that was from his own family, his own tribe. But isn't that kind of interesting that sometimes it's hardest for us to admit we're wrong. It's hardest for us to even receive forgiveness when we feel like we have messed up in a way that's almost unforgivable. If it's something minor, oh, we can kind of move past that. But when we really feel like we have really messed up, we have really sinned, it seems like it's so much harder of finding that forgiveness. So then David's going to do the very unexpected in verse 13. So he's got the kingdom still divided. Everybody's wondering what's he going to do. Some are wanting him back. Others are confused. So David goes to a man in verse 13 named Amasa. He says, you are not my blood and flesh, meaning you're not part of my family. You're not from my tribe. But he says, God, do so to me and more also... If you are not commander of my army, for now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the hearts of all of the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all of your servants. So here's what David does. David goes to the enemy side, the northern territory that followed Absalom, and he takes the commander of Absalom's army, and he puts him in charge of his. And you think, David, what in the world are you doing? Why would you take the, the leader of your enemy and put him in charge of your army? But you notice what it did? It swayed the hearts of even Judah. So here's what I think is happening. I think David is sending a strong message. And he's saying, listen, Judah, if it, I can forgive a Mesa, if I can use him, if I can put him in a place of honor, I can do that for you. You are my own flesh and blood. So what David does next is truly amazing. Because David, this was the time to march back in the city. This is a time to insert your dominance. I mean, you've got them on the run. This is the time that you should come in with all the power and all the might so that no other uprising is ever tried again. But he doesn't do that. In verse 15, it says, So the king came back to the Jordan. So David is he's east of the Jordan River. Jerusalem is on the west side of it, and he's crossed over the Jordan. David is coming back, and he comes to the Jordan River, and he stops. And in this moment, he has come back there. But why would David come to the Jordan and stop? I believe it is David. He is not going to force his will. He is not going to force himself upon the people. He's going to come to the Jordan River, and he's going to stop. And he is going to see if they will repent and to invite him back. In fact, Tommy Nelson said, it's because he's a gentleman. He's going to wait and see. Are they going to invite me back? He's not going to force himself upon anyone. 
And then verse 15 continues. And Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over from the Jordan. So Judah comes and they say, yes, David, we welcome you back. Please come back and reign as king. And then the author does something that's a little interesting. The author is now going to take us from looking at the large picture to four individual lives to see their reaction of the king coming to the Jordan and waiting. The first one we're going to see is going to be our buddy Zeba. In fact, it's in verse 16 through verse 23. There's this story inside a story. And so I want us to first look at Zeba's response to David. And it picks up in verse 17. We're going to kind of jump to the middle there. And then we'll come back to 16. So in verse 17, we see Zeba's reaction. He says this, And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Zeba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. Then in verse 18, And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. So Zeba, remember, he's the servant of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. They had a special relationship between Jonathan and David. They made this vow to always protect, provide for each other's family. He finds out Mephibosheth is alive. He was crippled when the raid was happening. But he brings him in and he cares for him. And he puts Zeba as his main servant. But Zeba is from the tribe of Saul. Remember, he came to David and he said, David, I bring you these supplies. I want to care for you. I want to provide for you. But you know what? Mephibosheth, he's turned on you. All that you've done for him, when the siege was happening with Absalom, he took advantage of that because he wants to reign as king. What we see now is Zeba, he was lying. He was being deceitful for his own personal gain. But here we see Zeba again. But notice that Zeba doesn't say a word. Zeba comes down, he uses his family to bring the king's household over. But in a minute, we're going to see three men and their responses to David. But here's what you will notice. Those men receive David's mercy and his forgiveness. But you never see it with Zeba. So why would David, why could David not forgive Zeba? Why could he not show mercy to Zeba. And I think it's because there, Zeba is only there to serve the king for his own pleasure. He's trying to use his works, his efforts to gain the king's favor, and that'll never work. I think it happened with Absalom. I think he could kind of show himself and do certain things with Absalom. He gained favor, but it's not going to work with David. David is going to see right through that because David knows you cannot earn his favor by your works. You can't earn his love and his acceptance and his forgiveness. Ziba, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to earn it by helping the king across. He never says a word. And you see this by noticing the contrast between him and the next person. So look back to verse 16. It's this man we saw last week named Shemai. In fact, we've actually seen him for two weeks. So it says Shemai was the son of Gera, a Benjamite. So he's related to Zeba from the lineage of Saul, from Baharim, 
And he hurried and he came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Well, you remember who this Shammai was? He was the man as David is walking up the Mount of Olives and he's weeping, he is mourning, he is, he is uh, going up this mountain and he is mourning over the loss of his country, his kingdom, his throne. And there's this man on the other side of the, the valley that shouts insults at David and even picks up wads of dirt and he throws them. Remember, Abathar wants to go over and, man, he wants to kind of cut his head off and shut him up, but David won't let him do it. So now this man is coming before David. But notice the difference between how Ziba responded and Shammai. In verse 18, you see it, the second half of that verse. And Shammai, the son of Gera, notice what happens. He fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day of my lord the king when you left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and to meet my lord the king. Man, don't you see the difference? I mean, Ziba comes and he uh, tries to earn the king's favor, but Shammai comes and he throws himself at the mercy of David. He's sorry for his sin and he begs the king for forgiveness. Well, then we see Abishai again in verse 21. You know, he's David's defender. It's kind of like, you know, Peter was to Jesus. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, said, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this? Because he's cursed the Lord's anointed. And David holds out his hand. He says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah, that you should this day be an adversary for me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know that I am this day king over Israel. And the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king gave him an oath. And David said, listen, there's going to be no more bloodshed. There's been way too much. It is time to forgive and to come together. And it's interesting this week how God works. Our family, we do several or a couple of different books. We've got kind of a morning book that we do as a family, as a devotional. And we've got one that we typically use at supper time when we have a night that we can gather around the table and it's a book that walks through men of, or women called Courageous Christians. And one of them this past week was about Abraham Lincoln. And it tells a bit of time that he was taking supplies up the river and he's dropping them off one day in this town and he gets there and he watches other people buying and selling other people. And he just almost couldn't stand it anymore. You know him, he becomes president and he stands up against the horrible evil of slavery and then lincoln had to do something that no other president's ever had to do he had to lead a war against other americans well the battle is over the war has come to an end and then it's time for the reconstruction it's okay now what are you going to do you've got these two sides that have been divided fighting against each other how are we going to treat the South? Are we going to treat them as enemies? Maybe institute martial law? Put troops in the South from the North? Or do we just allow the North to take over? 
And in his second inaugural address, this is what Lincoln said. No. We get rid of our enemies by making them our friends. We will have charity toward all and malice toward none. And he showed mercy. And that's what David does. He shows charity towards all and malice toward none. And you see that in the life of Shimei. Well, then the scene changes to Mephibosheth. And I imagine Ziba is somewhere hiding in the shadows. Because Mephibosheth gets down off that horse with help. Maybe he's got some makeshift crutches that he uses or some men help him to come before the king. And it says in verse 24, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go to me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to me, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king. For your servant is lame. And he had slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you... You set your servant, you set me among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why don't, don't speak any more of this. Why speak of any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Zeba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. So Mephibosheth, he tells David, the reason I didn't come to see you is I wanted to, but my servant Ziba, he deceived me. So Mephibosheth, here he is in Jerusalem. The king comes in, he comes out to meet him. Absalom is, I mean, Absalom is enthroned. He's there in Jerusalem and Mephibosheth stays. But to unite himself with the king, he doesn't wash his clothes, he doesn't trim his beard, he doesn't take care of his feet. What he is showing, he's identifying and he's mourning with David. Even in the presence of the wannabe King Absalom. Mephibosheth, his appearance, it, it says it all. That he's constantly aligning himself with David. Even at the risk of his own life. But instead of saying, look David, look at what I have been doing. Notice what he does. He throws himself down before the king. And he begins recounting David's blessing. He says, I deserve doom and death because I was from the house of Saul. But you brought me in and gave me a place at your table. You treated me like family. Mephibosheth says, listen, King, you have been more gracious to me, more than I could ever ask. But then David tells Mephibosheth some hard information. He says, Really, because of what I said earlier with Ziba, here's what we're going to do. I know I gave you all the land, but we're going to divide it. You take half, and Ziba is going to take half. 
And I'm thinking, listen, if I'm Mephibosheth, I'm crying foul. I'm saying, listen, that is not fair. He deceived me. He stood against you. And you're going to give him half of everything? I was faithful to you. But Mephibosheth says this. He says, I don't care. That stuff doesn't mean anything to me. In fact, look at verse 30. And Mephibosheth said to the king, listen, king, let him take it all. Since my lord, the king, has come home safely. Mephibosheth says, that's all I need. That's all I desire is to know that the king is home. And isn't that a beautiful picture that we see that all those things don't mean anything to Mephibosheth? He says, give it to all of them. I don't care. I'm just glad that my king is home. But then we see the fourth person, and I've been waiting all week long to tell you about Barzillai. We met him uh, last week with the battle with Absalom. He was one of the three that came to the king with these supplies. The, Israel, or the king and his army, they're weary, and he comes with these two other men to help them, give them supplies, beds, and food. But here we're going to see Barzillai one more time. In verse 31, he says, Now Barzillai, the, the Gildite, had come down to, from uh, Roglam. And he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. So it's like this big party is beginning to gather at the Jordan River that the king is coming back home. Barzillai, he was a very aged man, 80 years old. And he provided for the king with food while he stayed in Maharim. For he was a very wealthy man. So Barzillai was one of those three that came to David after the battle, right before the battle of Absalom. And he's risking everything. He says, I'm going to stand with David. He was risking everything to care for him and to come alongside him. But there's some important information about him to see him in this incredible light. So first of all, he's a... A Gildite, which means he was a rancher. He's a rancher that lived on the land, but he was also in his 80s. So you've got this 80-year-old, very wealthy rancher. And this is how I picture him. I picture him strong, calloused hands. Picture his skin just real leathery. I mean, he's just been sunbaked year after year as he's worked those herds and those cattle and, and, and his sheep and his goats. But he moves much slower now. But he comes down to the Jordan to serve the king one final time. And David is utterly moved by this. I imagine him getting down, I don't know, off that camel, that donkey, and, you know, maybe some guys helping, but he moves much slower but he's just got that look of years after years of hard work. But he's done well for himself. But in verse 33, and the king, he said to Barzillai, he said, listen, come over with me, and I will provide for you in Jerusalem. So David says, listen, Barzillai, come back with me to Jerusalem. Let me, let me take care of you for a change. Listen, I'll give you a nice room. Man, I'll give you a hot tub to soak your old bones. I'll provide you a comfortable bed, food that you've never tasted before from all over the world, the finest clothes. 
Listen, you will hear music like you have never heard before that will just calm your spirit. I will have servants to wait on you. You don't have to lift a finger anymore. Live out your years in comfort and style. But if you notice something, at least I'm beginning to see this, as you get older, as you begin to age, that when you were young, you were so easily caught up in things that we think are going to be bring us pleasure in this life. But as you get older, then those things are just not valued as highly. And there just becomes, you begin to feel this, as people get older, there's, there's this greater sense, it seems, of contentment. You know what? I no longer care that my stereo can, you know, bounce my car, that it's so loud. You know, I'm talking to my dad this week, and, you know, he still shops for Lee jeans. I didn't even know they made those anymore. You know, he's not caring about how he looks anymore. He's just comfortable. But the things that we used to chase after, we just go, ah, you can keep it. And so Barzillah's response is amazing in verse 34. But Barzillah said to the king, how many years I have still to live, that I should go with the king to Jerusalem. He says, listen, I, I don't know how long I have. He says, I am this day 80 years old. So, hey, today's my birthday. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? He says this, listen, I'm old. I can't hear really anymore, so your music, I'm sure it's great, but I can't even tell the difference between a, a man and a woman singing anymore. I mean, I've eaten the same thing for 30 years, and my taste buds are just so used to things. Your f- fancy foods, ah, I, they would just be wasted on me. So then in the last part of 35, he says, Why then should your servant be an added burden to the Lord the King? He says, listen, I don't want to be a burden, king. Don't waste your time on me. Now, this next verse, it almost chokes me up. Every time I think of this man, picturing this happening, as I think of this elderly man standing before David, his younger king, I believe he's proud. I believe he knows he is God's anointed, and he's just happy to be there. He doesn't know how many days or weeks or years He has left probably not many. He's lived a full and a blessed life. And then he looks at David and he says this in verse 36. Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me for such a reward? And here's what he's saying. He says, David, king, just to go across the Jordan River with you. My king, that's all the honor I need. I just want to be in the boat when you cross. You can have your comfort, you can have your food, you can have your servants, your fancy music. I just want to be seen one time in the boat with the king when he crosses. That's all I want. I just want to be in the boat with the king. But he says, you know what, king, if it's not too much, in verse 37, he says, then please let your servant return. 
that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. Just let me go and live out my days where I'm comfortable, where my family's from. But here is your servant, Chiam. Let him go with you, my Lord, the king, and do with him whatever seems good to you. And he says this, listen, I have, I have a son. He said, could you take him? Would you take Chinnam with you, and would you make him into a man like you? Because I don't know how long I have left. And in verse 38, the king answered, Chim shall go over with me, and I will do with him whatever seems good to you, Barzillai. And all that you desire of me, I will do for him. And he says, listen, if you need me to take him and to make him into a man, I will do that. And you know what you see in Jeremiah chapter 41? You see a land named after this man, David, did it. He took him and he made him a man. And then in verse 39 through 40, it says, And all the people went over the Jordan. So here's the boat. They're all gathered together. They're helping everything across. There's this boat they put the king in. And I believe his arm is around Barzillai. And he says, He's with me. And the king went over, and he kissed Barzillai, and he blessed him, and he returned to his own home. And the king went on to Gilgal, and Chiam went on with him, all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, and they brought the king on his way. So to return, David stood at the river and he waits. He waits for the people to repent and to invite him to come back as their king. And when they do, the king crosses over with his arms around Barzillai. And he heads to his rightful place. And next week, I want us to see David's, what they call David's famous last words. What's so amazing about David is not really about him at all. It's about who David is pointing us to. Because David was this shepherd that 15 weeks ago we saw become a king. But a thousand years after David, a better shepherding king named Jesus comes. And in fact, the story of David, we actually see a picture of the Christian life, how it begins and the blessings of what it means. So David stood at the river. He's not going to force himself on people. He's going to stand and wait. He's going to see, will they repent? And will they welcome him back as the king? You know, Jesus also stands and he waits. He's waiting to see, are you and I going to repent? And are we going to welcome him as our king. But Israel and Judah, they followed after a false king. They listened to the newest, latest voice, and they gave everything to follow Absalom. We have the same temptation today. Our hearts are so easily captured by, by false kings and false idols, even when it's us. But you see, Zeba, he approached the king and says, Listen, I'm going to help you across. I'm going to win your favor. Everything's going to be based on what I can do for you. And Zeba never receives acceptance and grace that he's looking for. The truth for us is you can never earn Jesus' love and acceptance. Your good works and my good works, they will never be enough to get you accepted by the king. Your best work on your best day will never be enough. And then we see Shammai. 
He finds forgiveness before the king by falling down and repenting of his sins. And that's the only way to salvation. That's the only way of acceptance before Jesus. The only way is by throwing yourself at the mercy of Jesus through repenting of our sins and welcoming the king to take his place in our lives. And when that happens, when grace reaches down and takes a hold of you, you know what you experience? You experience Mephibosheth. He experienced David's acceptance. He was invited to eat at the king's table. But you know what? Life threw him a curveball. He was deceived by his own servant. David then splits everything that he was given to him and gives it to his deceiver. Man, you would expect Mephibosheth to cry, that isn't right, that isn't fair. But instead, Mephibosheth says, I deserve doom and death. So whatever you decide, whatever I receive, that is up to you. But he says, give it all. Give it all away. I'm just happy that the king is home safe. And listen, when you come to faith in Christ, you begin to see your life differently. You want to always handle things perfectly? That's not what it's about. But all of a sudden, entitlement, you can begin to feel it being chiseled away. Because you know who you would be without Jesus. Then all that entitlement begins to fade away because you become so overwhelmed with what Christ has done for you that no matter what happens in this world, you find satisfaction just knowing who the king is and where he sits. And then Barzillai. He's offered so many things, but he found true contentment. All Barzla wants is to be in the boat with the king. And I think the nearer we live to God, the more the things of this world begin to fade in comparison. And we find contentment and satisfaction that this world, it could never give you. But then I love that Barzla, he wanted David to take his own son and make him a man after you. And I would ask, isn't that what you want for your children? your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, those that you teach, that you want them to grow up and to value Christ above all else, above sports and education and money and fame or whatever it might be. Do we want them to grow up and to be like the king? And You know, I know the scriptures tell us that the best way that happens is when they see us wanting to be like the king. But the king today is still standing at the river waiting. And the question would be, do you know him as your true king? Have you turned from everything and fallen at his feet in repentance and begged his mercy? But I believe the truth that when you do that, it says that he is just and faithful to forgive no matter what it is. That his grace can cover it all. That is the only way to find acceptance and forgiveness and contentment. And then there's Barzillai. The greatest thing in his life, the greatest desire, was just to be in the boat with the king. And I wonder, is that your desire, that no matter what happens, listen, I just want to be in the boat with the king. That nothing else can compare. And I pray that that is you this morning. And I want you to know at the end of the service today, if... You're here this morning and you have questions that we want to speak with. We want to sit down and talk with you. 
I'll be here at the front. Clint will be at the back. Find any of our elders, our deacons, anyone here would be more than happy to visit with you about this person we call Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.